So here we are in the middle of chapter 31, and we were suddenly faced, faced with this sense of urgency. First, we were so bitter on the account of our animal soul and our body because they are so loathsome, so despicable, so disgusting, so low down. And you say, why are you calling the body and the animal soul all these names? You know why? Because let's look at the truth of reality. The truth of reality is there's nothing else besides Hashem. And then along comes this body with the animal soul and starts giving a whole different set of criteria of what's important and what's special and what's delicious and what's attractive. Things that are against Hashem's desire. Is there anything as disgusting as that? There can't be anything that disgusting. Think about it for a minute, okay? So we said, all this is true. I'm not discounting everything I said before. Everything I said before is true. The body is loathsome. The body is despicable. All those names that we called. But that's only one part of the picture. There's another part to this picture, and that is, within me, there is a piece of Hashem himself. The infinite reality is being housed within my body and my animal soul. If I took all those meditations seriously, I suddenly am aroused with an immense, tremendous mercy on the divine soul. Think about it. What was her reality before? Her reality before was that she was totally united with Hashem and absorbed within Him. And then she comes down through Seder Hishtalshlis, coming down through the four worlds to enter a physical body that holds her clutches, holds her in captivity, is making her express herself against herself. Because you remember that every time we use our physical body, the energy within it is powered by the divine soul. So when somebody does something against the divine will, they're using this holy divine energy to defy Hashem. This is the ultimate pitiful state. The divine soul is held captive. It's forced to live in substandard, filthy place, this princess, and forced to act against herself. When we realize that, we are moved to action. What are we going to do about it? Well, we're going to do whatever we can to release it. That sounds really good. That's our plan of action now. We're going to release it. But how? So before we get into this next piece, I just want to share a story, a very pointed story of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. One time a teenage boy went by the Rebbe and said, Rebbe, do we Jews believe in reincarnation? And the Rebbe said, yes, but don't wait until then. Hey, maybe this is our second chance or our third or our 40th chance. Right now is when we're called to action. Right now is when we have to do something. We realize the situation over here. We realize this princess is held in captivity. We want to free her. How are we going to free her? Okay, so let's talk about the idea of Achtos Hashem, the unity of Hashem. This idea of realizing that there's nothing else besides Hashem is a cornerstone and a foundation of the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov, the teachings of Chassidus. That is, when we say, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, we don't just mean that there's no other God or authority besides Hashem. You know what we mean? We mean that there is no other existence besides for Hashem. There is only one reality, there is only one existence, and that is Hashem. And in fact, the Mittler Rebbe, whose birthday and yard site was yesterday, the son of the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, he writes in the introduction to his Sefer, Imre Bina, he said, My father, in all of his Shabbos drushes, his Shabbos sermons, each week, all of his life, publicly and privately to unique individuals, all of it was in order to establish Achtos Hashem, the unity of Hashem, in the heart and mind of each person according to how much he is able to handle with his abilities. He saw this as his father's mission, that his whole life he focused on bringing this idea home to the heart and mind of every Jew, that there really is nothing else besides Hashem, okay? So let's take this for granted now. There's nothing else besides Hashem. Now, I'm not going to ask by a show of hands how many people feel that way, but chances are most people are not going to raise their hands. Why? 
Why don't we feel that way? There's nothing else besides Hashem. And yet we perceive the world to be a separate existence. We perceive ourselves to be a separate existence. How? How does that come to be? It's like the utter truth is there's nothing else besides Hashem. And we don't see it that way. Why? The reason is, as we learned in chapters 21 and 22, that Hashem hid himself. There's the concept of tzimtzum, contraction. Hester panim, the hiding of the countenance. Hashem hid himself so that now we can perceive as though there is something else besides him, which of course is not true. Okay. Now, when there is no symptom, when there is no contraction, when there is no hiding of the countenance, automatically the truth is exposed. There is nothing else besides Hashem. The fact that we don't perceive it is because of a superimposed condition. Hashem is all that there is. But there is this contractions, these concealments that make us believe otherwise. Suppose for a minute that these contractions and these concealments have been removed. Okay, then the truth is manifest. There's nothing else besides Hashem. Do you know that we have a space like this in the universe? We have a space in the universe that's pre-symptom, where there is no hiding of the countenance, there is no concealment, no contraction. And you know what that is? That is a mitzvah and that is Torah. What is a mitzvah? A mitzvah is nothing other than the divine will. That's it. That's all there is to it. There is nothing else to a mitzvah other than being Hashem's will. Everything in this universe has a shell, and we have to see through that shell in order to discover the divine essence. A mitzvah has no shell. What is it? It's Hashem's pure, unadulterated will. And the same thing with the Torah. The Torah is Hashem's pure will and wisdom. Torah and mitzvahs are pre-symptom. When there's no superimposed condition, then the truth is manifest that there's nothing else besides for Hashem. So now, when a person does a mitzvah, when a person learns Torah, what are they doing? They're allowing their soul to experience the ultimate reality, the ultimate truth that there's nothing else besides for Hashem. And that's the key here. Every time we do a mitzvah, every time we study Torah, we free our soul from captivity. The body doesn't feel it, but the soul feels it. She's in this terrible, loathsome, deep, dark exile. We want to free her. That's it. We realize. We realize we have our life's mission and agenda is to get the princess out of the dungeon. That's it. We're fed up. We realize the meditation is true. The meditation is true and we need to get her out of there. What are we going to do? We have this pre-symptom space. We have this place in the universe where we can put the soul so that she could be exactly the way she was before she came down here. Totally united with Hashem. And that is Torah and mitzvah. So this is the key here. We are on page 6 of 13, at least in my booklet. Okay, I'm just going to go back and read some of the English to put it in context and perspective. If so... Then on the contrary, the further I am removed from God and the more despicable and contemptible, the deeper in exile is my divine soul and all the more is it to be pitied. Therefore, I will make it my entire aim and desire to extricate it from this exile and to return her to her father's house, meaning to restore it to its source and its original state as in her youth. Meaning, as it was before being clothed in my body, when it was completely absorbed in Hashem's light and united with Him. Okay, so that's our agenda. We want to restore the soul. And how are we going to do this? Now, too, it will likewise be absorbed and united with him once again. How are we going to do this? When I concentrate all my aspirations on the Torah and the mitzvahs, I'm going to free this soul. I'm going to restore her to her father's house. The Zohar calls the, the Neshama Kadisha, the holy soul, the Bas Kaihen, the daughter of the Kaihen. And this whole thing about returning her to her father's house is from the Pasuk of the Torah, speaking about the daughter of the Kayin. So here I'm going to take all my efforts to restore her back to her father's house. And I'm going to do it by Torah and mitzvahs. And here I have a story to share about a Los Angeles-born lawyer. 
in the 60s who grew up in a religious home. But then, you know, with the rebelliousness of the 60s and feeling the restrictions of Torah, decided that he's going to cool off a little bit. Now, meanwhile, his wife was very interested. They went through a life's journey. They went through a serious accident. And his wife was badly hurt. She developed a relationship with the Rebbe. She got miraculous brachas from him. The doctor says she wouldn't be able to have children. The Rebbe blessed her. She had five children, Baruch Hashem. And at one point, she wanted to visit the Rebbe. And her husband came along with her from Los Angeles just to be her support, but not because he was interested. And they're waiting for their turn. And the Rebbe's secretary gave him a paper and said, here, write down your questions. And he said, I don't have a question. I'm here with my wife. And he said, right. So he gave him a piece of paper and he's thinking, what am I going to ask the Rebbe? And so he said, if God is so great, why does he care about all the details? It bothered him. A God that's so great, why is he giving us these detailed mitzvahs? So it's their turn, and he hands his paper to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe looks at him and says, I don't understand your question. He thought maybe he has to reiterate his question in Yiddish. So he starts saying the question again in Yiddish, and the Rebbe stops him. And the Rebbe says, it's not for God, it's for us. Hashem wants us to be close to him, and this is the path that he gave us. And the man, looking back at that time, said it was as if he was in a dark room and suddenly the Rebbe turned the light on. He had a very closed perspective on what it means, Torah and mitzvahs. He thought Hashem is micromanaging us and trying to tell us, don't do this, don't do that. This is what you have to do in order to get a reward or stay away from punishment. No, that's not what it's about. Hashem is infinite. We are finite. He's giving us a path to infinity. He's giving us a path to become close to Him. He's giving us a way to access that pre-Timsum space where there is nothing else besides Hashem and that's what our soul experiences. So we want to free our soul. What are we going to do? We're going to invest all our energies in Tyra and Mitzvahs. In an effort to enclose their aim, all of the soul's Ten faculties, meaning by applying my mental faculties to Torah study and my emotive faculties to the performance of the mitzvot with a vitality lent them by love and fear of God, as explained above in chapter 4, thus will my divine soul be reunited with Hashem. So, as we learned earlier in Tanya, the soul is a pure essence that is undefinable. But the closest way we can define it is by its ten faculties. There's three intellectual faculties and seven emotional faculties. The three intellectual faculties are Chochma, Bina, and Da'at, which are translated in English as wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. But if we want to use like a more Kabbalistic translation, we will say Chochma is conception, Bina would be cogitation, and Da'at would be application. So these are three intellectual faculties. Then there are seven emotional faculties. The primary ones are Chesed and Gevura, which means kindness and severity. These are love and fear. All the other emotions are offshoots of love and fear. So there are seven of them, but the primary ones are love and fear. When a person is really bent on this mission, they say, hey, you know what? I realize the serious situation over here. I am now on a cause. I am now have this one agenda, and that is free the divine soul. I'm going to do whatever I can to put her back to where she was before she came down here. And I realize the way to do this is with Torah and mitzvahs. The more of my soul I invest in this process, the greater is her freedom. So this is the difference with somebody who just kind of superficially reads and understands. So what are they investing? A superficial level of their mind and thus a superficial level of their soul. So they invested this much of their mind. That means they freed this much of their soul. Or somebody who said, you know what, Torah learning, not for me. I'm just going to do mitzvahs all the time or vice versa. Mitzvah performance is not for me. I'm like the intellectual person. I love to study mitzvahs, not so much. So that means that they free their soul to some extent. But if you're really in this, if you really think that this is the most important thing to do right now, you're going to invest not just only a superficial level of your soul. You're going to invest as much of your soul as you possibly can. You're going to study with more depth. You're going to give, do the mitzvahs with more love, with more fear, because you want to put your entire soul into this. The more of your soul you put into it, the more she becomes free from her captivity. Now, that's true about all the mitzvahs, that we free our soul every time we do a mitzvah, but the altar is going to single out one mitzvah. 
Ubifrat bimitzvah tefillah, especially in fulfilling the mitzvah of prayer, while I try to release my divine soul. Now, why does the Alter say especially with prayer? Every single mitzvah has two components. In one way, it is similar to every other mitzvah. The common denominator between mitzvahs is that every single mitzvah is the will of Hashem. And in this way, when we do a mitzvah, we're freeing our soul from captivity. She comes to the space where Hashem's will is totally manifest. But then, every mitzvah has something unique about it. The mitzvah of tzedakah is in order to make poor people comfortable. The mitzvah of Torah study is to understand divine wisdom. In this way, the mitzvah has its own theme that is not necessarily about freeing the soul from exile. Yes, every mitzvah frees the soul from exile because every mitzvah is Hashem's will. But there's one mitzvah that not only is its general theme Hashem's will, and therefore it frees the soul from captivity, its unique theme is free the soul from captivity. Reunite it with Hashem. You know which mitzvah that is? Prayer. Prayer is the chance for the soul to run away to Hashem, to speak to Hashem, to cry out and say, I'm so distant from you. I miss you. I want to be close with you. That's what prayer is. And this reminds me of a story of a little boy back in communist Russia who had the chance to smuggle out a letter to the Rebbe with somebody who was going back to New York. Now you remember what the life of the little communist of the little boy living in communist Russia was like then, right? No food, always freezing cold, constantly in danger of keeping Judaism. Now you would think, what would the little boy write to the Rebbe? You know, like, please bless me. My family should be able to leave Russia. Please bless me. We should be safe in this terrible, crazy environment. But what does he write to the Rebbe? He writes to the Rebbe that he has a problem. His prayers are not as they should be. He was writing for a bracha with help for his prayers. And the Rebbe told the Hasidim that he got this letter. He held back tears. And he said, what does the little boy write to me? He writes to me about prayers. Because he understands that the connection to Hashem is what's most important. Yes, he's living in Russia. Yes, he doesn't have the food he needs. He doesn't have the clothes he needs. He doesn't have the religious freedom he needs. But what bothers him the most is that he doesn't feel like he's connecting with Hashem. That's what prayer is. Prayer is this opportunity to connect with Hashem. And therefore, when a person wants to free her soul from exile, what is she going to do? She's going to invest herself, the totality of her soul, in Torah study and in mitzvah performance, and especially in prayer, whose entire theme is connect with Hashem, relationship, get away from this exile and come back to Him in closeness. Let Aik El Hashem Batsarla, Migalusa Begufi Hamashukats Lahitia Mimasker Uladafka Bayasparech. By crying out to Hashem because of the distress of its exile in my loathsome body, so that he release it from captivity and bind it to himself. This service of God in one in which one seeks to restore the soul to its source is referred to as Chuva with good deeds. This is a re- really interesting expression. We find it in Perke Aves. Tshuva maisim taivim, tshuva and good deeds. One hour of life in this world with tshuva and good deeds is worth more than all the world to come. Tshuva and good deeds. Isn't that an interesting expression? This is an oft-used Talmudic expression denoting the mitzvot, as in the statement, one hour of tshuva with good deeds in this world is better than all of the life of the world to come. At first glance, the juxtaposition of the two seems incongruous. Chuva deals with atoning for one's past imperfections, while good deeds are performed in the present and would seem to be no relation to one's past. According to the Alter Rebbe's statement, however, that one's performance of the mitzvahs should be motivated by a desire to return his soul to its source within Hashem, the connection between the two is clear. The good deeds themselves actually constitute teshuva, which means return, as the Alter Rebbe continues. So here's our question. We're talking, we have this expression, tshuva and good deeds. Why are we lumping the two together? Let's look at each of them. Teshuva means rectifying the past. The person did a sin, the person did a misdeed. They need to correct the past. They need to do teshuva. Then let's look at the other thing. My sim taivim, good deeds. What are good deeds? Good deeds are about connecting to Hashem. Okay, so first of all, why are we putting the two together? 
And second of all, if we're putting the two together, put my simtaibim first. Put good deeds first. That's what's most important. Do good deeds. And if you messed up, do teshuva. But teshuva with good deeds? What is that? Now we understand. The good de- deeds themselves are teshuva. We have to look at teshuva in a whole nother light. We always think of teshuva as being fixing up your mistakes. Yeah, that's true. That's one aspect of teshuva. If you made mistakes, do teshuva, fix them up. But teshuva over here means restoring your soul to Hashem. And this is a lifelong journey that never ends. This is about returning the soul to its pre, to its condition before it came down here, totally united and absorbed within Hashem's reality. Every good deed is teshuva. Every good deed has this purpose of restoring the soul back to Hashem teshuva as it was before it came down here. Okay, so here we go. Teshuva and good deeds means good deeds that are teshuva. So based on what we learned, Tyra and Mitzvahs return the soul to Hashem back to the way she was before she came down here. And now we understand. Shehein maisim taivim sheaisa kedei lahashiv chelik Hashem lemekaira v'sharsha dechol almen. This denotes the good deeds which one does with the intention of returning the soul, which is part of God, to the divine source and root of all worlds. We have to look at the teshuva in a different way, not teshuva just as rectifying misdeeds, but in the words of Kohelas, Baharuach Tashuv El Ha'elokim, the spirit shall return to Hashem. And this is what it means. The good deeds return our spirit to Hashem. And that's what teshuva is. Doing these good deeds with the intention of freeing our soul from exile. Restoring it to the way she was before she came down here to be totally united and absorbed with Hashem. If a person lives with this shuva their whole life, they're going to constantly be in a state of joy. Living with this agenda makes a person in a space of joy always. Why? This then should be one's lifelong aim in the service of God with great joy, the joy of the soul upon leaving the loathsome body and returning during one study of the Torah and service of God through prayer to her father's house as in her youth, meaning to the unity with God that it enjoyed before it descended into the body. So let's think of this for a minute. If this princess, this beautiful, precious princess, was abducted and taken into captivity, the joy that she experiences when she's released from captivity is extremely great. You cannot compare the joy of somebody who always has it good. It's very joyful to always have it good, never have any problems, have all the money you need, have all the health you need, have all the the life that you want, your programs, your agendas, whatever you love, you got it all. Very, very happy. But think about the princess who was in the most precious space and then taken in captivity. Not just to any regular captivity, but a deep, dark exile where she's miserable. And then she is released. The joy, the incredible joy that happens from her release is enormous, indescribable. So yes, we should always be happy when we do a mitzvah. The simple reason why we should always be happy to do a mitzvah is because we get to serve Hashem. What greater joy is that? Just think about it for a minute. Here we are, and we get a chance to have a relationship with Hashem. He says, do this, and we can do it. That should bring us immense joy. Just for that, we should be dancing. But on top of that, there's another joy. We get to release our soul from captivity. Every time we study Torah, every time we do a mitzvah, we're releasing our soul from captivity. The joy is enormous. And if a person always lives with this agenda, this is their plan, I'm getting my soul out of captivity, they're always in joy. They're always in a state of joy because they're allowing their soul to be released from her, the clutches of the animal soul and totally reunited and absorbed in Hashem, experiencing the truth of reality that there's nothing else besides him. What a joy. What a way to live. This corresponds to the statement of our sages that one ought to engage in tshuva throughout his life. Remember, if we're talking about the regular kind of tshuva, why should you do tshuva all your life? Don't sin and don't do tshuva. No, no. 
This is a different way of being. This is your whole life is teshuva. Your whole agenda, everything you want to do every single day is restore the soul, teshuva. Restore the soul back with Hashem out of captivity. If the word teshuva is understood only in the sense of repentance for sin, why the need for further repentance once one has already repented? However, the teshuva as explained here, returning the soul to its source is something in which one may well engage throughout his life. Whenever he studies Torah or performs a mitzvah, this is teshuva already, that's a lifestyle. So now the Altar is going to explain what happens, the joy that a person experiences when they live this life. Surely there is no joy as great as that being released from exile and captivity. It is comparable to the joy of a prince who was taken captive and was subjected to the hard labor of turning the millstone in prison while covered with filth. So here is this prince who lived this happy life together with his father, the noble king, and now he is turning the millstone covered with filth in prison. And then he's released. The joy that he experiences this is the joy that we experience. And who then goes free to the house of his father, the king. Such a prince, descended from the supreme king, is the soul. And by means of the Torah and the mitzvot, it is redeemed from the captivity and degradation imposed on it by the body. Okay, so let's sum up what we said until now, and then we're going to move on. We started to realize that we have a goal here. We have a life's purpose. We have an aim. We have to free the soul from captivity. And how are we going to do that? We're going to do that by investing ourselves, throwing ourselves into the Torah and mitzvahs with all 10 faculties of our soul. And this is what it means when we say tshuva and good deeds. All our good deeds are teshuva. Every single time we study Torah, every single time we do a mitzvah, we're doing teshuva. We're restoring the soul to its state as it was before it came down to be here in this body and this is the greatest joy freeing the prince from hard labor from filth from captivity to come back to his father the king okay that sounds really great freeing the soul from captivity we live with this life's purpose we're always happy but one second what of the body is the body good now how could we be happy when we just said that what are we doing here we're freeing the soul from the filth of the body the filth of the body, that means the body's filthy. That means the body's low down. That means the body still has all its problems. How could we be happy? So this is what the Alter Rebbe is going to explain now. We're on the beginning of page 8. True, the body remains abominable and loathsome. That is still the reality. The body remains a body. The animal soul remains animal-like. So what's the happiness? And as the Zaihar says, it is called a serpent's skin. So in the Zohar, the body is referred to the serpent's skin. This is a very interesting concept. And it is written up in Targum Yenison. Targum Yenison was written by Yenison ben Uzihel. He was the greatest student of Hillel Hazakein. Hillel Hazakein had 80 outstanding disciples. The top 30 of them were said to have been so great that they were deserving of the divine presence as was Moshe. The lower 30 were considered so great that they were able to stop the sun in its tracks like Yehoshua. And the 20 were in the middle of these two groups. The smallest of these students was considered to be the great Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who was so great that he understood the deepest secrets of the Torah. This is the smallest of all the students. He was the leader of his generation, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Do you know who the greatest of these students were? This is our frame of reference, remember. The smallest is Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. The greatest is Rabbi Yenison ben Uziel. They said about him that when he studied Torah, if a bird flew over his head, it got burnt to a crisp. When he finished translating the Nevi'im, the earth started to tremble and a voice came forth from heaven and said, who dare reveal my secrets to mortal man? And Yenison ben Azil stood up and said, 
It is I. I haven't done it for my own sake. I haven't done it for the merit of my fathers. I did it so that your children will understand what the prophets have told them. And from heaven he was told, stop. You cannot interpret the Kesuvim because in there are secrets that are, main, that are meant to remain secret until Mashiach comes. So on the Pasuk of in, in Beratius, when it says, Vayas Hashem Elokim Adam And Hashem the Lord made for Adam and his wife skins, clothes of skin, and he dressed them. So this is what Yenison ben Uziel translates. The Avad Hashem Elokim Adam say levushin dikar min mishach chevya the ashlach mine al mishach besrehen chalaf shayfrehen deshtalchu v'al bishenon. And the Lord Hashem made to Adam and to his wife vestures of honor from the skin of the serpent, which he had cast from him upon the skin of their flesh instead of that adornment which had been cast away, and he clothed them. So what does he say over here? He says that Hashem took the skin off of the serpent and he put it on Adam and Chava and said, this became their clothing. Now the serpent represents the three totally unclean klipot. The skin of the serpent represents klipas naiga, that klipa that has some good in it. When it was still attached to the snake, it was completely unrectifiable. When Hashem took the skin off of that serpent, that three klipa serpent, that completely impure serpent, and instead put it on Adam and Chava, who were formed by Hashem's own hands, he now allowed for the rectification of klipas naiga. So in general, this is the concept of mashka dechevya, the skin of the serpent, which is the skin that Hashem took off of the serpent and put it onto Adam and Chava. Now, the Rebbe has a note on this over here to say that in this context, the skin of the serpent actually would mean a compliment. Like, it was taking something away from the snake and giving it to Adam and Chava for them to rectify. But in our context over here, the Alter Rebbe is not meaning to talk about the compliment of the mashka de chavya, the skin of the serpent. Here, we're talking about the problems of having a mashka de chavya. In this context, it is like Eov says, Ar ubasar talbisheni. With flesh and skin you have dressed me. Our body is considered the skin of the soul. When you say dressed me, you dressed me, my soul, with skin and flesh. And in this way, our body is reminding us of the snake. The snake is the enticer. And our body in its loathsome in its loathsome state is reminiscent of the snake. So here it's all true. We are releasing our soul from exile and yet our body remains in its loathsome, abominable state, dressed in the skin of the serpent. It is the skin of the serpent. Our body is called the skin of the serpent, the mashka de chevya. Ki mahusa va'atzmusa shal ha-nefesh ha-bahamis la'ina since the essential character of the animal soul has not been transformed to good so that it might be absorbed into the realm of holiness. The bottom line is, as long as we're not a tzaddik, that is our reality. Our body, our animal soul, always remains a struggle, always remains a force to contend with, trying to pull us, lure us into the enticements of this world. It has not been utterly transformed into goodness. For as explained above, the Benoni may indeed elevate the garments of the animal soul, the thought, speech, and action through which it expresses itself, by performing the mitzvot by means of his thought, speech, and action. But the essential character of the animal soul, its intellectual and emotional faculties, remain subject to the realm of klipat noga. How then can one be expected to rejoice, knowing that his body and animal soul are still in such an undesirable state? I get it. We're releasing the soul. Our soul is so happy. She's back with Hashem the way she was before. What a joy. Released from captivity. But one second. What about the body? Are we forgetting about the body? The body is the skin of the serpent and it's in loathsome, abominable space. Why are we going to be happy? So the altar was saying, one second. Reconfigure here. Let's look at the bigger picture and let's realign ourselves. Mikol makayim, tikar nafshay be'enav l'smayach basimchasa. Yet, let his divine soul be more precious to him than his loathsome body, 
so that he rejoices in the soul's joy at its liberation through the observance of the Torah and uh, the mitzvot from the exile of the body without letting the sadness on the account of his body interfere with or disturb the joy of the soul. So yes, our body is still in a sorry state, but we have to remove our allegiance from the body and place our loyalties instead with the soul. Let's look at them. We're made up of two. We're made up of body and soul. Okay, now let's, let's compare them to each other. Can you compare the preciousness of the soul with that of the body? There's no comparison whatsoever. The soul is infinite. The soul is a part of Hashem. The soul is literally a part of the divine reality, okay? Its preciousness, its value is priceless. We cannot even describe how amazing the soul is. And that's an understatement. And then the body. The body is a temporary corporeal being that houses our soul and our animal soul as well. And they are klipa-based. They are drawn to things that are against Hashem's will. How are you going to compare? How are you going to compare body and soul? The soul is infinitely more precious than the body. So yes, your soul is in a sorry state. But realign your allegiances over here. Are you going to be sad on the count of your body when your joy is so, when your soul is so happy? Your soul is so happy. So, okay, the body's in a starry state, but be happy because your soul is so happy. Imagine parents are marrying off their only child. At that moment, when they're dancing with joy, seeing their child's joy, are they thinking about, oh my gosh, I still didn't stock up on my groceries or any other things that people think about? No, not at that moment. You're dancing at your child's wedding. What does that have to do with anything? Okay, there's still problems. You still don't have enough pasta in the pantry, but big deal. Who cares? That's not what's going on over here. Our soul is so happy. Our soul is elated. Our soul has been released from captivity and reunited with Hashem. Okay, so the body's in a sorry state. You're going to confuse the sorrow, the distress of the body with the happiness of the soul? Come on, get with the program. So in order to really get there, we have to meditate. We have to stop and think about it because our natural allegiances are with the body. That's the self that we relate to every single day. It sounds really good. Just forget about it and move on. But that's who we relate to, our body consciousness. It's not our truest essence. Our truest essence is our soul. But in order to tap into that, we have to think about it. We need to stop and think about it for a minute. Realize the preciousness of our soul versus the body. Yes, the body is what we relate to, but that's not who we are in our essence. In our essence, we're really the soul. So grab on to the joy of the soul and be happy in its joy from being freed from captivity. Okay, now the altar is going to tell us like this. This method that I'm giving you is a very interesting method, right? The method is don't try to fix the problems of your animal soul right now. Just run away and escape. All you have to do right now, have the agenda of setting the soul free. That's your aim right now. Your aim is, yes, the body's in a sorry state. Don't try to fix the animal soul right now. You got to just run away. You have to set the soul free. And actually, we have precedence for this in the Torah. If we look at the story from Exodus, how the Jews left Egypt was a very similar method. This was the method of Yitzhiya Mitzrayim, Exodus from Egypt. This form of divine service in which the divine soul breaks free of its exile within the body, while the body and the animal soul remain in their lowly state, is analogous to the exodus from Egypt. Of which it is written that the people escaped. The Jews told Paro that they would leave Egypt for only three days, but upon being released from his land, they escaped. This is a very interesting story. And before we look at it more fully, let's understand the exile in Egypt. Every physical condition in this world evolves from a spiritual condition. When we look at the exodus and the exile in Egypt, these reflected a deeper spiritual state, which was the cause of the exodus and the cause of the exile, or first the cause of the exile and then the cause of the exodus. So let's look at the exile of Egypt. The Jewish people at that time were in a very lowly spiritual state. They were, they were told to have been sunken in to the 49 gates of spiritual impurity. They were literally at the lowest rungs. 
Spiritually, they were captive in Egypt, Egypt representing Tuma, impurity. When we read the Haggadah, we say, Ad shenigla alehem melech malche hamlachem akadesh barachu. Until the king of the kings of kings revealed himself to them and he redeemed them. If this is a physical exile, what does it have to do with Hashem revealing himself to them? We should say, until Hashem took them out and set them free. No, because this physical exile reflected a much deeper spiritual space. The spiritual space was they were really in exile. They were sunk in 49 gates of impurity. How did they get out of there? What was the key to their freedom? That Hashem revealed himself to them. They experienced a divine revelation. Now, the story is a very interesting story. Why did the people have to run away? Remember, Paro was forced to send them. He didn't want to send them, not for three days and not forever, but he never wanted to send them, not even for three days. Why did he send them? Because he was forced to. He had to. He went through these ten plagues. He was forced to set the people free. If he's forced to set the people free, why don't you just say, bye, we're leaving now and forever. That's not what they said. They said, we're going, we're going to sacrifice to our God in the desert for three days. They were escaping. Why escape? And that's because it reflected the spiritual exile, and that was the method they had to leave the spiritual exile. They had to leave by means of escape. And this is what the Alter Rebbe explains. At first glance, it seems strange. Why should it have been so in a manner of flight? Had they demanded of Paro that he set them free forever, would he not have been forced to do so, having been stricken by the plagues? The explanation, the Alter Rebbe goes on to say, lies in the spiritual aspect of the Exodus. And this was reflected in its physical counterpart, just as every event in Jewish history reflects a parallel spiritual process. The corporeal enslavement of the Jewish people in Egypt reflected the enslavement of their souls by the klipa of Egyptian impurity. Their exodus from Egypt likewise represented a spiritual liberation from this klipa. Since the spiritual exodus was an act of escape, meaning their soul broke away and escaped from the impurity of Egypt while the body and animal soul were still in exile within klipa, therefore the physical exodus likewise assumed the manner of escape. So the reason why they physically escaped is because spiritually they had to escape. Spiritually, their body, their animal soul was in a very sorry state. And they didn't get busy with healing them. What they did was immediately they ran away to free their divine soul. The method here is forget about the animal soul, forget about the body for a minute. Right now, just work on freeing the divine soul. Yes, the body and the animal soul are in a bad space, Eventually, we'll, we'll deal with that. But right now, when you're sunken in 49 levels of impurity, don't even go there. You know what you need to do right now? You need to free your soul. You need to release it from captivity. You need to allow it to run to Hashem and unite with Him. That's the first step. You know, sometimes people think that the way to heal a relationship is by first solving all the problems. Oh, no, no. That's like the couple sitting by the fireplace. Cold winter night. And they're enjoying the warmth of the fire. And suddenly... There's a draft. And they say, oh my goodness, there's a draft. So they get up off the couch, they look around, and sure enough, they find some cracks. So they get those draft protectors, they get some pillows or blankets, whatever they get, they stuff up the holes. Okay, then they get back to the couch. What do you know? There's another draft. And so they get up off the couch and they go searching, where's the cracks? Guess what? By the time they finish fixing all the cracks, there's no more fire in the fireplace. Don't do it that way. Okay, so there's drafts. But you know what you're going to do right now? Forget about fixing all the holes and instead throw another log into the fire. And that's what we're doing over here right now. Yes, the body, the animal soul, they're in a bad space. They need to be fixed. We'll take care of that at one point. But right now, we're concentrating all of our efforts to get the soul out of here, to allow her to run back to Hashem, to be freed from captivity. And this is achieved through Torah and mitzvahs. Okay, so I'm stopping in the middle of the thought, even though I don't like to, but I don't want to rush through it, and we'll finish this thought next time. I'm going to, meanwhile, uh, recap this last section that we said. So we were talking about how a person who lives with this space of constantly doing mitzvahs in order to free his soul lives his whole life in teshuvah, not the kind of teshuvah that is rectifying sins, that too, but the teshuvah that is all about restoring the soul to Hashem. And when a person works on restoring his soul to Hashem, then he's constantly in a state of joy because there's no greater joy 
than being released from captivity. Think about the prince who was first with his father, then doing hard labor, filthy in prison, and now he is released. There's no greater joy. And now you're going to say, one second, how can I be happy? How can I be happy when their body remains the same as it was? And Alderman says, one second, realign yourself over here. It's true your body's in a bad space, but your soul should be more precious to you than your body. Realign yourself. Reconfigure your loyalties. Rejoice in the joy of your soul and don't disturb the joy of your soul with the distress of your body. And we have precedence for this in the Torah of just quickly escaping without dealing with evil at that point. And that is the spiritual and physical exodus from Egypt. What did the Jewish people do? They fled. They had to flee Egypt not because of the physical paro. They had to flee Egypt because of the Egypt within themselves. As long as we still find Egypt somewhat tempting, then we have to run away. That means we're enslaved. And instead of trying to fix the problems, don't try to fix the problems. You know you're enslaved. Get out of there as fast as you can. Run to Hashem. And this is indeed what happened in the exodus from Egypt. To be continued next time by the Hashem, and I'm opening up for questions and discussion. So I have a, like a visceral reaction when, when they talk about the loathsome body and this negative thing, because our body is the vessel that allows our soul to thrive. And, and we honor the body, you know, we're respectful of the body when, we, when someone dies and all of these things around the body, right? And so it really affects me because I think we need to be thankful for our bodies. And, and this kind of puts, puts that down. So I understand there's a negative pull to the animal soul, but even that houses the, um, you know, the, the, the higher soul. So um, I just have a hard time with the way they're presenting it. So you're 100% right. And actually, as the chapter ends, we're going to talk about elevating the body and the animal soul. And when we're calling the body loathsome and disgusting, we're not meaning that the physical body is disgusting. That's not what we mean. The physical body, in fact, comes from a very high space. When, when earlier in Tanio, and the Alter Rebbe lists all the things that come from Klipas Naga, he doesn't list, he lists the animal soul, but he doesn't list the physical person of the Jew. Because that actually comes from a very high space. It comes from Saifi, the encompassing light. But still, as the soul and the body, the animal soul and the body, experience life, they have this warped consciousness of what's important and what's tempting. And that's true. We, ha we have to honor them. We honor them in the fact that they're a vessel in order to express the soul. As long as they know their place, then they are so amazing. But it, by default, that's not, they don't recognize that. By default, they are, hey, donuts. <laughs> they totally don't know what's good or what's important. They, the animal soul, the body, all it seeks is comfort. It seeks ego-centered practices. Even the good practices that the body and animal soul seek are ego-centered. All self-serving with this mindset that it is an existence for itself and it's not part of Hashem's reality. So that mindset and that self-centeredness is disgusting. If we think about it, you know, think about the truth. The total truth is that there's nothing else besides Hashem. There is no reality outside of Him. And then along comes this creature and says, I am something of importance and I am something special. And I have, yes, there's Hashem and I have to serve Him, but I have my own agenda too. That kind of mindset is totally, totally contrary to Hashem's will. And if we're going to judge what's good, the way to, the true barometer, the way to judge it is how in sync with, is this with Hashem? The body, the animal soul, by default, the way Hashem made them is that they have a very diminished consciousness. And that was by design, on purpose, as we're going to review, as we're going to visit next class. And we have a job to do as far as the body and the animal soul. But... In their very basic raw state, totally unrefined, then I, it's the truth. <laughs> you know what I mean? We don't like to hear it, but the truth hurts sometimes. Now, uh, if, if, it didn't, I, if it didn't answer your question, then go ahead and ask another one. No, it, it's just, it's just 
I feel like we need to respect the body and it's there to serve a purpose. So every time, you know, they say these horrible words, it just puts it down. It's like, it's like, it's like saying something to a child, you're putting it down. It's like, no, rise up, you know, bring it up. And so whenever you say these things, I just feel like it degrades it. And that's why it's such a, it feels painful when, when you say that. Right. Yeah. And I just want to go back to the analogy of a child who a person degrades. The difference between putting down a child and putting down the body and the animal soul is the child is a free spirit with freedom of choice who is a, a blessing and a gift from Hashem who has to make their, her, his and her own decisions. Here's somebody who we need to empower, who we need to uplift, who we need to raise up and inspire in order to do the right thing and show how precious they are inherently the body and the animal soul are here as vehicles they're here to allow our divine soul to express itself and as long as it thinks of itself as an independent existence then we're in major trouble it's like you know you get to your car and you say hey i want to go to whole foods and your car says are you kidding i want to go to magic mountain what do you mean you want to go to magic mountain you're my car the body and the animal soul are good only as so far as they serve our divine soul. As long as they have their own agenda, you're saying, I want to pray, I want to study Torah, and they're saying, no, I have other things I want to do today. That's where the problem begins. This is, this is alluded to in the story of Hagar with Sarah. You know, when, when Sarah, Sarah Imenu, Sarah from the Torah, she has this maid, actually the princess, Hagar, and she takes her into her home and asks Abraham to marry her so that they can have children because she was barren. Now, once he marries her, she, she becomes pregnant right away. She starts looking down at Sarah because she thinks, I'm really special. I got pregnant right away and you've been married all these years and you haven't had child. So she starts looking down at Sarah. And what does Sarah do? Sarah starts to afflict her. Afflict her? Why? Is this a way we treat people who work for us? Well, the reason why she was even allowed to be married to Avraham was as long as she recognizes she's Shifchas Sarah. She's Sarah's maid. The second she starts to think, oh, hey, I'm important. Oh, I'm really special. Well, that's when she needs some affliction happening. She needs to be put back in her place and realize, no, you're only special insofar as you serve Sarah. As soon as you start looking down at Sarah, you think you're more important and you have your own opinion, you have your own agenda. Then that's when the, the, the hard work begins. We need to put you back in your place. And that's how it is with our animal soul, with our body. The body, the animal soul, they're so precious because they allow our soul to fulfill its mission in life. They're precious as long as they live with that agenda. As soon as they start having their own agenda, then we have to remind it. Who are you for yourself? For yourself, you're, you're nobody. You're a lowdown. You're disgusting. I know we're allergic to these words, but the bottom line is as long as they have their own agenda, then that's exactly the way they are. Got you.